All right, why don't you go ahead and turn to 1 Kings chapter 7 with me. Much like chapter 6 of 1 Kings last week, today there are tons of details. Remember last week as we looked at the temple construction, it was a bit overwhelming with all of the details. And as I mentioned, you know, I'm somebody who when I get to a book like Numbers or something like that, I just want to kind of rush through it or skip over it, skim over it, because it's all these details and you kind of wonder what the practical application is about the squareness of the Holy of Holies or things like that. And, and yet, I have to remind myself that all Scripture is given to us for a purpose, and so there's got to be a purpose there. And sometimes it's not quite as easy to find as maybe one of the epistles where it just comes right out and tells you what the practical application is. But as we saw last week, the temple actually displayed the glory and the splendor of God, and that was one of its purposes. Well, we're still kind of in that mode as we look at our passage today, because chapters 6 and 7 really focus on the building of the temple. And then it kind of in the middle of that, which is where we're at today, gets into the construction of the palace of Solomon. And then it goes back to the temple. So we've got more details relating to the temple. And so rather than jump over or skip over it, we're going to read those I'll call it pedantic details. And then we're going to really talk about it and see what we can learn about it. Now, the first 12 verses or so of chapter 7 deal with Solomon's palace. Then verses 13 through 47 provide details on the objects that are outside that surround the temple. And then the very end of the chapter adds some additional details regarding the furnishings inside the temple. Things that were not provided in chapter 6. So we're going to look at that and we're going to see what this will teach us this morning. Let's start with Solomon's palace. The design of Solomon's palace was not only the reflection of the wisdom that God had given him, but it served to reflect God's blessings on Israel as well. And so I think when we look at Solomon's palace, we're going to see that it too revealed the wisdom that God had given to him, but that also it reflected God's blessings upon Israel. We saw how Solomon's wisdom that God had given to him was revealed not just in the things that Solomon said, his teachings, but in the things that he did. We saw how he basically had set up his administration and everything else, and those, all of those things represented the wisdom of, of uh, Solomon. We also saw how he taught, he lectured, um, he was great with animals and birds and all kinds of creatures, and people would come from all over the world to hear him lecture. That's all part of his wisdom. But throughout our chapters that we've looked at, the things that he did as well revealed his wisdom. He was able to practically apply the things that God had revealed to him. For instance, the building of the temple. Here was a man who was 20 years old when he became king. He probably was too young to be involved with David when David's palace was built because he would have been probably about four to five years old. And so here he comes in with zero experience, but he knows enough to tap Hiram, a builder from Tyr, to have him come. David had apparently told him to do that. He was able to take David's plans that he had laid out, and he was able to put put together a construction crew, he was able to finance all of it, and he oversaw the building of this massive complex, probably the largest complex in the ancient Near East. Those are all demonstrations of the wisdom that God had given to him, and we're going to see that in some respects today, but there's a challenge with what we see today because of the way most commentators handle this chapter in the building of his palace. And so I'm going to spend probably more time defending a perspective on this than getting into a lot of the details. But let's go ahead 
And look at this. We're going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 to start with. Now Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its width was 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. It was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There was artistic window frames in three rows, and the window was opposite window in three ranks. All the doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames, and the window was opposite window in three ranks. Then he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits, and its porch was in front of them, and pillars, and a threshold in front of them. He made the hall of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. His house where he was to live, the other court inward from the hall, was, on the same, was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. All these were of costly stones. The stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws, inside and outside, even from the foundation to the coping, and so on, the outside of the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, even large stones, stones of ten cubits and stones of eight cubits. And above there were costly stones, cut according to measure, and cedar. So the great court all around had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, even as the inner court of the house of the Lord and the porch of the house. So we have this grand description of what Solomon's palace looked like. Now it's fairly common for commentators and pastors to look at this passage here that reveals Solomon's temple and they use phrases like opulence, worldliness, secular activities. One pastor I was listening to even said that it revealed Solomon's mixed up priorities. In fact, the commentary that, um, one of the two commentaries that I've been using to help with some of the textual stuff and other things, probably one of the most well-respected and reviewed commentaries on this, and the author actually writes this. I want you to listen to his words, how he views what we just read. Inserted between the building and the furnishing of the temple, this palace construction story shows that Solomon's secular interests never ceased and that these interests cost more than his religious ones. The palace takes nearly twice as long to finish. Presumably it also had lar- was larger and more costly. That's not true. Some of these differences are natural, given the constant use of the royal residence and the hall of justice. Still, the close proximity, proximity of the two passages, building of the temple and the building of the palace, meaning the author puts them together, he said the close proximity makes the contrast quite obvious, even startling. The author again leaves doubt about the king in the reader's mind. How many of you had doubts when you read that? This author says that as we read that, it leaves doubts in our minds now about Solomon. Indeed, Solomon has built himself an impressive home. In this project, self-indulgence and another, ex- or is this project self-indulgence or another example of God's blessing? The author does not comment, though readers must wonder if this extravagance is in keeping with Moses' declaration that kings must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. How many times did you guys see silver or gold in that passage? Zero times. Now, there was some gold used. We'll get that in a minute. But at least it is quite possible that another commentary 
is correct in writing he, Solomon, did everything imaginable to show that Yahweh was a great God, but also that he was a great king. What is displayed here is far more Solomon's riches and honor than his wisdom. He is undoubtedly the piety of worldly success. Now, generally, this is a pretty accepted assumption about this palace, that it was opulent, that it was sin, that Solomon spent twice as much time building it as he did God's temple, and that said something about his value and his purposes. And you know, they're right that it took Solomon twice as long to build this complex as it did to build the temple. It's also true that this complex was larger than the temple. But, I want us to look at some other perspective on this. We learned that the first thing that Solomon built was the temple, which says something about priority. In fact, he didn't start construction on his palace until the temple was finished. In fact, look at uh, chapter 6, verse 38, right above where we started. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house, that's the temple, was finished throughout all its parts and according to its plans. So he was seven years in building it. So he took the first seven years of his reign and built the temple. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Now Solomon was building his own house. Thirteen years and he finished the house. So after the first seven years, he finished the temple. Then he began to build his palace. And that took another 13 years. If you go all the way to chapter 9, verse 10, we see that it wasn't until the end of his reign, or I'm sorry, the end of his 20, first 20 years, that he actually finished his house. Verse 10, And it came about at the end of the 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. So basically, again, first priority was to build the Lord's house. Think about King David. His house was built first. He wanted to build the temple, but the Lord said no. That doesn't say anything about David's priorities. And it doesn't say anything here necessarily about um, Solomon other than he prioritized the Lord's house and put it before his own house. Now, we also learned that the palace was larger. It took twice as long to build. That is true. But it doesn't show mixed up priorities. I want you to think about something. This house of Solomon's wasn't just Solomon's house. It wasn't just where he lived. It was the whole entire governmental complex. Okay? Israel governed, Solomon governed a massive area. It wasn't just Israel, but he had influence outside the boundaries of Israel. He had thousands of people on staff. And so this complex that's described here is actually not just his house. In fact, a large meeting hall called the House of the Forest of Lebanon is described in verses 2 through 5. There's a large building called the Hall of Pillars in verse 6. There's his throne room, which is where he judged from, verse 7. Now, I want you to notice something. Look at verse 8 again. The house where he was to live, the other court inward from the hall, was, on this, uh, was of the same workmanship. That's the only thing said about Solomon's actual, actual living quarters. A half of a verse mentions Solomon's living quarters where he actually would live. Does this sound like mixed up priorities to you? 
A half of a verse dedicated to where Solomon actually lived. If this were a way of showing Solomon's grandeur himself, you would expect a lot more detail about how he lived, about the gold faucets in his bathroom and the chandeliers from the oh, We don't hear any of that at all. The author here clearly downplays the living quarters for Solomon. In fact, the next half a verse of, of verse 8 describes a house for his wife. He built a separate living quarters for his wife. But that's all we get. One verse dedicated to where he lived and where his wife lived. A half a verse each. Now, what's not really mentioned here is that this complex also included the living quarters for his staff, large storehouses to store food, but also there were storehouses to store gold and silver brought in by all the other nations as tribute. That's what this complex really is. It's a governmental complex. He happens to live there, much like we might expect here. You know, we have the Capitol, we have the White House, we have a place where the president lives, right? But there are an awful lot of government buildings that surround Washington, right? That's really what we're looking at here. This is not about Solomon's opulence. It's about function. This is what was necessary to govern Israel. Now... Obviously, the palace was fairly grand. We're kind of told that. It was built with expensive stone, with cedar, with wood paneling, had these giant columns, had ornate window frames, even had coping along the ceiling. But you notice, as we've already hinted at, there was something noticeably absent from this description here. Gold was mentioned some half or almost a dozen times when it came to building of the temple. Gold is not mentioned anywhere. Silver is not mentioned anywhere here. Now, there was gold used in the throne room along with ivory. All of the gold or all of the utensils, the feeding utensils and all that kind of stuff were all made out of gold. There was some silver there. But the author, I think, deliberately avoids listing all of that here. If his intent here was to show the opulence of Solomon, he could have included some of that stuff, but he didn't because that wasn't his point. So it was a rather ornate and grandiose complex. I think as we look at this, rather than see this in a negative sense, rather than see it somehow as Solomon's love for opulence and worldly extravagance and mixed up priorities, I think we ought to see it much like the Queen of Sheba did. We're going to be looking at the Queen of Sheba in a couple of weeks, but I want to turn and look at what she, or what her response is as she looks at all of this. Because she goes to visit Solomon and they spend most of their time right there in his complex. She does look at the stairs that lead up to the temple. There's no indication she went up to the temple itself. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. She spends most of her time in the complex, and she's pretty impressed. In fact, one way to translate her, the phrase that's used to describe her, is that she was out of breath after seeing it. So it was obviously pretty grand. But I want you to notice her response as she looks at it. uh, The first ten verses, so we're going to start in um, verse 4. Chapter 10, verse 4. When the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, notice the tie there, this house she perceived, this complex, she perceived as the wisdom of Solomon, along with what he had shared and the questions that he answered. But she included in her perception that the complex was an expression of Solomon's wisdom. The food at his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and, and, and their attire, his cupbearers and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She was breathless. Then she said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own 
land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I did not believe the reports until I came, and my eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men, how blessed are those of your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Get this. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever before he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king 120 talents of silver and then talks about the rest of the stuff. Her response As she looks at all of this, she recognizes the wisdom that God had given Solomon in the development of this complex and laying out his staff, the people that served him, all of that she recognized as God's wisdom given to Solomon. But then from there she goes on and she praises God for doing that for Solomon. Does that sound like this was all about Solomon? She didn't see it that way. In fact... If you look down at verse 1 of chapter 10, now when the queen of Sheba heard about the, it says the fame, it's actually literally a report. When she heard the report about Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. Which means that as people spoke about Solomon, as people would come and hear Solomon, and they would go back to their country, they would talk about what they had seen. And they didn't just talk about the prosperity and the wisdom of Solomon, they linked it to Yahweh. The complex, this government complex, wasn't about the opulence or the extravagance of Solomon. It said something about God. And it should reflect his splendor, should it not? It didn't reflect it like the temple did. Remember, everything head to toe was covered in gold. But the complex itself reflected something about God. It wasn't about Solomon. It had a function Again, there were storehouses and places for the staff to work. There were meeting rooms and halls. But it was built in a very grandiose way. But again, not like the temple. I kind of, I always think of the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Schuller. And I think, wow, talk about over the top, you know. This temple was grand, but not like that. I think the author deliberately is careful. Again, he mentions the gold utensils and the silver elsewhere. He does mention the gold and the ivory used in the throne room. But the rest of this he describes in detail. It doesn't appear that there's any gold or silver used in the rest of the construction of this temple. And I think that's important to understand. Had Solomon wanted to build this temple to display his own grandeur, we'd probably expect gold and silver and other things. But that's not what we see. So all of the aspects surrounding the construction of Solomon's palace indicates that it was another example of God's wisdom, just like the Queen of Sheba saw it. But it also served to reflect God's blessings upon Israel, the fact that Solomon was able to build a complex like this with the wealth that God had given to him to serve the needs of Israel, became an impressive symbol for all of the nations around them. And we're going to see that in a little bit as well. Now, the author at this point kind of moves on, and he's now going to go back to the temple But he's going to focus primarily at this point on the outside of the temple and some of the things that surround it. So I would say it this way, just as the interior of the temple reflected the splendor and the majesty of God, the interior also reflected that same splendor. The author turns his attention back to the temple. He's going to focus mainly on the outside here, but then turn to the inside. And so all of these things, outside and inside the temple, reflect reflect something about God. 
I want to read verses 13 through 22. Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from, from Tyre. He was a widow's son from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and the skill for doing any work in bronze. So he came to King Solomon and performed his work. Now this is not the same Hiram that built the complex. It's another one, also from Tyre. We get more details here. But this man was a skilled bronzeman. It's what he worked in. He was known for his skill with dealing with bronze, and that's going to become important for us here. We go on. We're going to read uh, verses 15. And let's go down to verse... Uh, we'll just read down until we're, we're done here. I think it goes down to about verse uh, 39 or so. But 15. He fashioned the two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of both. He also made two capitals of molten bronze to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one of the capitals was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. There were nets of network and finished threads of chain work for the capitals which were on top of the pillars, seven for the one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars, the two rows around on the one network to cover the capitals which were on the top of the pomegranate, or which were on top of the pomegranates, so he did for all the other, or for the other capital. The capitals, which were on the top of the pillars in the porch, were of lily design, four cubits. There were capitals on the two pillars, even above and close to the rounded projection, which was beside the network. And the pomegranates numbered 200 in rows around both the capitals. Thus he set the pillars at the porch on the nave, and he set up the right pillar and named it Jachin. And he set up the left pillar and named it Boaz. On the top of the pillars was lily design, so the work of the pillars was finished. Let me see if you can see this. So I'm going to turn this light off here just so you can... I've got some pictures from the video we saw last week that give an artist's representation of what these might look like. And again, there's a certain amount of liberty taken by the artist for this, but he did the best job he could to kind of depict what this might have looked like. So you see the two bronze pillars on the right and the left of the door. Each pillar was made of molten bronze, approximately 27 feet high, 18 feet around in circumference. On the top of the pillar were these two capitals, these bronze capitals, seven and a half feet tall. There were two rows of pomegranates at the base of the capitals, and then a lily design on the top. I think, if I, I, think I might even have a picture of that. So they might have looked something like that. Now, the pillars were actually given names. The one on the right was called Jacob, which as best we can tell, means something along the lines of he will establish. The one on the left was named Boaz. Now you remember that name may sound familiar because it's David's great-grandfather, married Ruth. But there's reason to believe that it might also be able to be translated in strength or something along that line. In fact, that's the way that it is in Psalm chapter 21, verse 1. And so you have these two pillars there's a lot of debate as to exactly what they meant because the author doesn't really define it for us. Sometimes you'll see in the text, it'll give us a name and then it'll tell us what that means. It really didn't do that here, so we're left to have to speculate a little bit. But I think the general consensus, if you will, if you can find consensus among scholars, believe that these two pillars maybe can be understood um, as the Lord's establishment of Israel and maybe his strength. And so... Some would translate it maybe like this. He will establish them in his strength. Might be a way you could interpret these pillars. Again, it's hard to know for sure. But you would think that the reason probably for these two pillars to be there 
They represent something walking into that temple. And if they do indeed represent God's establishment of Israel and his strength, that would be something significant for Israel. And so there was meaning behind these. So we have these two giant pillars that you had to walk through as you get into the temple. Now, the other thing, interesting thing about these pillars is they don't support anything. So again, it lends us to the idea that they were there purely as a symbolic reason. The Israelites would have understood the meaning behind these. We are somewhat distant from it, but I think the idea that they represent God's establishment of Israel and his strength are probably the best way to interpret these things. And that would be certainly acceptable as you walk into that temple, to walk into his presence. Now, the next description is this giant water basin, a brazen sea. There's another way it's described sometimes in your Bible. So look at verse 23. <clears throat> now, he made the sea of cast metal, ten cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was five cubits and thirty cubits in circumference. Under its brim, gourds were around encircling it ten to a cubit. Completely surrounding the sea, the gourds were in two rows cast with the rest. And it stood on twelve oxen, three facing north, three facing west, three facing south, and three facing east. And the sea was set on top of them, and all their rear parts turned inward. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was made like the brim of a cup as a lily blossom it could hold 2,000 baths. Let me give you some interpretation on this. It was completely made also of molten bronze. It measured 15 feet across from rim to rim. It was 7.5 feet tall. That's just the, the basin part of it. It was 45 feet in circumference all the way around. And it could hold 12,000 gallons of water. According to Second Chronicles chapter 4, verse 6, it was used by the priests for ritual cleansing before they would perform their services makes sense it was placed on the right side of the entrance so if you were standing in the temple you would look out and it would be off to the right hand side and you notice that it's on top of 12 oxen and these oxen there's three on each side if you will and they so they face north south east and west now the author again doesn't tell us what they represented but what do you suppose the 12 oxen represent probably the 12 tribes of israel now, what about the directions that they faced? Nobody really knows for sure, but what's interesting is when Moses was traveling with the Israelites in the wilderness and they built the tabernacle, when they would camp, God gave very specific instructions as to how they were to camp. And what he did was he took the 12 tribes and he put them around the tabernacle. But he put three facing north, three on the south, three on the east, three on the west. Might there be some connection to that? This might be symbolic of that, a scriptural reference that Israel would come in, they would see these oxen, recognize that this is Israel, would recognize them much like in the Old Testament, or much like the, the tabernacle facing in each of the four directions, which may in some respects indicate God's love for all people over all the land, including Gentiles, as they're facing outward beyond Israel. It's hard to say. But again, we have this amazing bronze sea here or basin that's used to cleanse before they can perform their rituals in the temple. He goes on. He talks about these ten, wheel, these ten different wheeled carts. Look at verse uh, 27. Then he made the ten stands of bronze. The length of each stand was four cubits, and its width four cubits, and its height three cubits. 
This was the design of the stands. They all had borders, even borders between the frames. And on the borders which were between the frames were lions, oxen, cherubim. And on the frames there was a pedestal above and beneath the lions, and oxen were wreaths hanging around it. Now each stand had four bronze wheels with bronze axles, and its four feet had supports. Beneath the basin were cast supports with wreaths on each side. Its opening inside the crown at the top was a cubit, and its opening was around the design of the pedestal, a cubit and a half. And also on the opening there were engravings, and their borders were square, not round. The four wheels were underneath the borders, and the axles of the wheels were on the stand, and the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel. Their axles, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all cast. Now there were four supports at the four corners of each stand. Its supports were part of the stand itself. On the top of the stand, there was a circular form half a cubit high, and on the top of the stand, it strays and its borders were a part of it. He engraved on the plates of its stays and on its borders cherubim, lions, and palm trees according to the clear space on each with wreaths all around. He made the ten stands like this. All of them had one casting one measure and one form. He made the ten basins of bronze. One basin held 40 baths. Each basin was four cubits, and on each of the ten stands was one basin. Then he set the stands, five on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea of cast metal on the right side of the house toward the south. You got all the details there? You do the math in your head to get an idea of what the size might have been. Each cart was identical. They were made completely of bronze, Top to bottom, every part was bronze. Everything from the axles to the wheels. They were square. They were six feet by six feet, and they were four and a half feet high. Each of the carts sat on top, or each of the um, basins sat on top of these carts, and they held 230 gallons of water each. Five of the carts sat on one side of the temple, and five sat on the other side of the temple. Now, according to Second Chronicles, again, chapter 4, these were also used for ritualistic cleansing of sorts. There are some that believe that probably the, the large basin was used to purify the priests to wash themselves, and that these carts, because they are on wheels, could have been so that they could do cleansing of the animals and they could clean up, because as you think about that, the altar is also outside here, which is where they would have sacrificed the animals. There would have been a lot of blood, a lot of cleanup, and so they, they, a lot of scholars believe that these carts were on wheels for that purpose. Priests could use them to wash, but likely it was used to clean up and to sanitize and then also to purify the animals, etc., before they were sacrificed. Now, one of the things that's not mentioned in this passage here, but is mentioned in Second Chronicles 4, is the altar that was outside as well. This is an author's depiction of what it might have looked like. But I'm going to go ahead and just summarize it. It was square, 30 feet on each side. It was 15 feet up in the air. Like everything else Hiram made, it was made mostly of bronze or covered in bronze. There probably was stonework around it much like this because it was a fire pit of sorts. Now, it probably resembled what God described in the wilderness. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to turn there. Exodus chapter 27. Exodus chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. And you shall make the altar of Acadia wood five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be one of, or of one piece and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make it pales or make 
its pails for removing ash and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans, you shall make all the utensils of bronze. You shall make it for grating the net, or you shall make for it a grating of network of bronze. That's the grates on the top. And on the net, you shall make four bronze rings, all four corners. You shall put it beneath under the edge of the altar so that the net will reach halfway up to the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of Acadia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the ring so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it's carried. You shall make it hollow with planks as it was shown to you in the mountain, so you shall make it. So we have the original description there. Now, what's interesting about this is the one there was five feet, I think, if I remember right. This one here is 20 feet by 20 feet, significantly larger. The one also in the, in the wilderness was only three or four feet high, I believe. This one here is, uh, well, I got my notes here, if I remember right, um, 10 cubits high, significantly higher. So much higher, much larger. And that would make sense. Israel at this time was also significantly larger than they were when they were in the wilderness. And um, when you look at some of the sacrifices... Um, Solomon makes when he dedicates the temple this was not even enough he had to dedicate the whole outside area and they had to use that for sacrificing too because of the sheer volume of animals that were sacrificed and so this is a fairly large altar it would meet their daily purposes but it wasn't even enough to satisfy the requirements for when they dedicated the temple now verses 40 through 47 kind of summarize it. Let's go ahead and read read that. We'll start at verse 38. I'm sorry, I've jumped on to verse 40. Now Hiram made the basins of the shovels and the bowls. So Hiram finished doing all the work which he performed for King Solomon in the house of the Lord. The two pillars and the two bowls of the capitals which were on top of the two pillars and the two networks to cover the two bowls and the capitals which were on the top of the pillars and the 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network to cover the two bowls and the capitals which are on the tops of the pillars. And then, or in, uh, and the ten stands which, uh, with the ten basins on the stands, and the one sea and the twelve oxen under the sea, and the pails and the shovels and the bowls, even all the utensils which Hiram made for the king in the house of the Lord were of polished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan the king cast them, in the clay around between Succoth and Zarathan. Solomon left all the utensils unweighed because there were too many. The weight of the bronze could not be ascertained. So we have there a summary of all this. Each of the items that we've seen here were all designed to reflect aspects of God's character. Do you notice the ornate details that were described throughout this? The pillars were decorated with this giant, with these giant lily capitals on them. They were completely circled with twisted threads of lattice work. They had hundreds of pomegranates that encircled them all along the base. The rim of the water basin was cut out like a lily. It had two rows of gourds encircling it. The ten carts were bordered with frames of lions, oxen, cherubim engraved on them. The supports that connected the wheels all looked like wreaths on them. I mean, this stuff was ornate. You know, what's interesting is we have found very similar objects through archaeology in the ancient Near East, meaning objects like this. We found altars and we found basins for washing and we found utensils. None of them so far have come even close to the ornateness of what's described here. 
which means that these things were probably somewhat unique. Why would that be? I believe it's because they were designed to reflect, again, the glory and the splendor of the one that they were used to serve. These items were created not just for their functional purpose, but to display the beauty, the majesty, and the splendor of the one that they were being used to serve. And they stood out. Another way that these items reflected God's character was in their function itself. It wasn't just their ornateness. The description of the pillars suggests that they weren't used for support. Remember, there's nothing on They're not holding anything up. Rather, they were, their function was to remind all those who visited and would walk into the temple that God was the one who established Israel and God was their strength. The large water basin and the ten basins were used to cleanse, which reflected God's holiness and the need for one to be cleansed before stepping into God's presence. The altar was designed for sacrificial things. It reminded the Israelites that their sin needed to be atoned for. I love the fact that it's on the outside of the temple. Did you catch that? God's presence was inside the temple. There was the Holy of Holies at the back of the temple, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was, but there was no altar there. There was a small altar of incense in the, in the holy place, but the altar for sacrifices was outside. That's where the sacrifices were made. They were cleansed before they could go into and be in the presence of the Lord. Each one of these things were designed to reflect the splendor, the glory, the holiness, the righteousness of God, but also the fact that he was willing to cleanse, he was willing to forgive sin, he was willing to make atonement for their sin. All of these things reflect that. The last few verses, 48 through 51, um, close out the construction of the temple and reveal how even the temple furnishings, those things that are inside, not just outside the temple, reflect God's glory and majesty as well. Look at 48 to 51. Solomon made all the furniture which was in the house of the Lord. The golden altar, that was the altar of incense, um, the golden table on which was the bread of the presence, and the lampstands, five on the right and five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, they were made of pure gold. And the flowers, and the lamps, and the tongs, everything made of gold. And the cups, and the snuffers, that's what you use to put out the candles. And the bowls, and the spoons, and the fire pans, all of pure gold. And the hinges, both of the doors in the inner house, the most holy place, and the doors of the house, that is, of the nave getting into the temple, were all made of gold. Thus all the work that King Solomon performed in the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things dedicated by his father David, the silver and the gold and the utensils, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. I've got a couple of pictures of that. This is maybe what the uh, altar of incense might have looked for. It stood right up against the stairs as you were going up into the Holy of Holies. You've got the table for the showbread. Again, artist depiction of that. Then you have these ten candle stands, five on the right, five on the left. In addition to that, you'll see on the walls there all kinds of engravings with whatever that is on the bottom, but the cherubim on the top and pomegranates and palm trees carved throughout the whole entire temple. The place was gorgeous. The splendor was awe-inspiring. I, as, I, as we watched this video last week, I thought with the candles in there, and the flickering light, and since 
pretty much everything from floor to ceiling was covered completely in gold. I think your retinas would be on fire. The way that that would shine and sparkle. So everything that we've seen in the construction of this temple, even in the palace, they were all designed to reflect things about God. His glory, his majesty, his splendor, his holiness, his righteousness, his willingness to atone and forgive. But even the palace itself was grandiose. So what are some of our takeaways from all of this? I think it's hard for us to kind of grasp, or at least fully grasp, the significance of this temple You know, ever since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we as the church have served as the temple of God. You know, God saw fit to destroy Herod's temple, the one built after this, the one that was at Jesus' day, saw fit to have it destroyed by Rome in AD 70, and it's never been rebuilt to this day. And why might that be? Probably because it would serve in many respects as a distraction. Because we are the temple of God. So I think it's hard maybe for us to grasp the importance or the significance of something like this during Solomon's day. Every god or every nation had their gods. They all built their temples to represent their gods. And in some respects, God took advantage of that. That's what communicated to people. He promised during the Exodus that he would choose a place to put his name. We know that that became the city of Jerusalem the country of Israel. He said that he would have a house built there for himself where all of Israel would come and to worship him. But even more than that, that place would become God's representation of who he was and how he loved for the whole entire world, not just Israel. In fact, when Solomon um, prays, when he dedicates the temple, he specifically includes a segment on when Gentiles would come from faraway lands and would pray that God would hear them. He also, in his dedication and in his benediction of Israel, even says to Israel that they ought to obey so that all of the kings of the earth might see that God has chosen that place to put his name. Now think about that in regard to us. What's our role and our function? Same thing, really. God has chosen to make us his temple, and we serve the same purpose that Solomon's temple did in some respects. It's a witness to the rest of the world, is it not? In fact, it's interesting because when, uh, twice in the passage that's discussing Sheba, the Queen of Sheba, we're told that kings from all over the world had heard and would come. And in both of those instances, it references the Lord. Meaning they were fully aware that there was some connection between Yahweh and what was happening in Israel. And in many respects, that ought to be the same way for us. When people see the church, they ought to see Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, many churches have forgotten that. We have all kinds of things that the church gets involved with. Things that we think are important. And we seem to lose sight of the fact that when people see us, they ought to see, much like Solomon told Israel, when they see your obedience, when they see you doing right and you receive God's blessings, all the world should know. We're supposed to be the salt and light, are we not? 
And so, again, it might be a little hard for us to grasp this because of the glory and the splendor, but we remember at that time, that was the way God revealed himself. Not just to Israel, but to the world. Today, that's us. It isn't some building. It isn't some church, some denomination. It's the universal body of Christ. And we are supposed to reflect God's love, God's mercy, God's grace, his forgiveness, atonement. That's one reason why it's important that we maintain sound doctrine. It's also why it's so important that we maintain good character and behavior. That we do what Paul says in Ephesians 3, that we walk according to our calling. Because without those things, the world sees nothing. And just as God said to the Israelites, when that time comes and you choose to walk away, when you choose to disobey, when you choose to forsake me, I will destroy the temple. I will remove my presence. It becomes useless. I'm reminded by what he said to the churches in the book of Revelation. And he tells them he would remove their lampstand because of their sin. So what is our focus and our goal? In many respects, we ought to look as grandiose as that. Now, how do we do that? By reflecting Christ. It's not us. It doesn't mean we build big buildings. It just means that we reflect Christ, just as this temple did. And to me, personally, I think it's a much prettier picture. When you see fallen, sinful human beings, redeemed, justified, reflecting Christ, that is an amazing, splendid picture, is it not? Much more grandiose than this. And that's where God's heart ultimately is. Is it not? Redeeming people? In fact, he told the Israelites, after giving them the law, that what he really demanded of them was that they love him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That that would be their greatest witness. That's one of the tragic things about Solomon. We're going to see this when we get to chapter 11. I liken it to probably the most catastrophic life experience we could ever be told. This man who was given everything and ultimately forsakes God. Tragic thing. So, our takeaway for us, I think, is that um, we just have to remember that we are the temple that we reflect God to this world around us. That's our number one priority. I think I, um, I don't know if I shared with, with you or not, um, with uh, Kimberly had a situation at uh, work a couple days ago. Maybe I shared this with you already. She had a situation at work where somebody had come up there. Their place is only open um, for drive-through. They have an a eating area, but it's closed. And um, not so much because of COVID. They just make more money with leaving it closed. And um, so anyway, somebody had come, and it was about 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and just started hammering on the door. And then he turned around and started walking back to his truck. And so the manager and then Kimberly kind of walked out and wanted to figure out what was going on. And he was all upset because your sign, you know, it says you're supposed to be open until 9. And how come the place is closed? They're like, look, it says right there, drive through only, you know. And he was just being nasty and irate. And so Kimberly, um, you know, she's all about customer service. She just loves going over the top to help people out. And so she's like, sir, 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 you know, I, I'd love to help you. What can I get for you? And yeah, you know, we, we don't allow seating in there, but we'll, we'll open it up. You can come in. I think she even said it, but she also said, oh, look, I'll take it out. I'll bring it out to you. Just whatever you want. We'll bring it out to you. And he kind of did some nasty gesture and waved her off and, and, you know, just was not polite. It was just 
whatever. And so she, you know, it was all frustrated. She went back inside and she broke down and she started crying. But she came home and she was telling us about it. She's like, Dad, everything in me wanted to flip this guy off. She's like, everything. But she goes, but I, but I, I just, I knew it wasn't the right thing to do. And she's like, so, and I didn't. And she had a devotion earlier that day that talked about that very thing. And she's like, boy, God's timing was pretty amazing. But what was interesting about it is when she was telling me this, she said, but it still gets me because I don't get why it feels so good to do the wrong thing and terrible to do the right thing. Meaning, I did the right thing by not flipping this guy off because, and she said outright, I think it would have disrespected Christ. It would not have represented him well. She's like, but that didn't feel good. What would have felt really good was giving this guy what he deserved. And so it ended up being this really kind of a neat, you know, um, discussion with her. Because she struggles with it like the rest of us do. She's right. And I told her, I said, yeah, it would have felt good to flip him off. For a minute. For a minute. And then there's payback. Right, and then there's payback, yeah. You know? Um, so, and I, I don't say that to, to puff her up. She struggles just like the rest of us do. But the reality of it is we always have to remember that we're his temple. We're his representation here. And that's significant because the world will see us and see Christ as the hope. Much like as people from all over the world, like the Queen of Sheba, see Jerusalem. That's where Yahweh is and associate that with Yahweh. They should be able to look at the church they should be able to look at us and see Christ. That's the hope. That's the essence of the gospel, is it not?